Sir, are you familiar with the incident we had a close head injury? Kicked in the head by a donkey? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can't help but think the asymmetry when you look at his face. <laughs> yeah. Between the left and the right. Yeah. And then, from a neuropsychological point of view, the leading into depression. Right. Asymmetry that's there with a close head injury could be a factor as well. Yeah. Have you visited the Lincoln Museum in Springfield? Because I think there's even a video there about his face where they point out that one eye is pointing in that direction. Maybe it's because he was kicked in the head. Um, that, that could very well be. I don't know. Um, but there's also this, this history, his family, of something. It's something biological. It's something chemical. Where his dad was known to sort of wander in the woods muttering with a gun. <laughs> like there's these strange descriptions, and we don't know if they were accurate or not. They were after the fact. A lot of you know William Herndon, um, after Lincoln's death, interviewed all sorts of people from New Salem, and that's where a lot of stories come from. Um, but his cousins and the families of his cousins later had mental issues, some of them were uh, later institutionalized. So there's this family history. But you could very well be right. I don't, I don't know what kind of impact a donkey kicking you in the head would have. I can't imagine it'd be good. <laughs> I think there's a question around the side. Is there any evidence that he had any sense of divine mission? A divine mission? <clears throat> that he had any sense of divine mission? He talked about providence a lot, didn't he? Um, his religion, Lincoln's religion, is a really interesting question something that's still debated and written about today. Um, when I was getting at his desire for fame a little bit earlier, part of the perception is that early in his life, he wasn't religious, maybe not even that spiritual. And he believed that when he died, that was it. And so the only way he could be immortal was if he did something that would make him remember today, that would make him immortal. Um, whether or not he felt like he had divine providence or divine mission. I don't know. I haven't seen that. He did talk about providence all the time. Um, but he famously, he was famously um, circumspect on this, wasn't he? This religion. And um, even at times talking about, let's say it was, I think it was like, and he was saying, well, God's maybe on our side, but the South thinks he's on their side too. So. What does that mean? Yeah, I don't, it's a great question. Um, I, I would refer you to Alan Gelso, who I think you met when we had him in. But he has written great books on Lincoln and his religion. Um, and he would, he would be a better person to answer that question than me. We'll have to invite him back to Grand Rapids soon and ask him. In fact, let me take this opportunity. Brian had mentioned earlier that at the All Presidents website, we have uh, YouTube clips of our speakers and Alan Gelzo gives about a 30 minute answer to this question of Lincoln's religion and the development of his of his faith over the course of his lifetime. I'd like to ask you Brian, by the way, great presentation thank you for enlightening us so much my uh, question of course you couldn't say anything different <laughs> what what is the lesson for teachers to go into the classroom and if they have one message about Lincoln that they should convey, what do you think that message should be? That's a good one, because I just gave you 
probably 90 messages and got to boil it down. Um, I think one that I think every college student should hear, and I wish I had heard it when I started as a freshman, is that you have to take control of your own development, of your own education. Of course you're going to meet mentors, you're going to have great teachers, they're going to expose you to a lot, but if you're only getting what they give you in the classroom and you're only getting the assigned readings, you're not going to go very far. Um, this is kind of a difficult one to talk about as someone who works at a university, but this, you know, we talk so much about liberal arts education, and it is hugely important. But if all you're getting is what you get in the classroom, you're spread so widely, you're going to get such a narrow um, or superficial understanding of so many subjects. And so I would tell college students looking at Lincoln's life, or I guess elementary or middle school students for that matter, to take your education in your own hands, take the reins, um, pursue these subjects further outside the classroom. Because we don't have enough time, we don't have enough seat time in schools anyway. I guess that's what I would say. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
college graduates in his cabinet. Um, graduates from Dartmouth, from Transylvania, from some of the top colleges and universities in the country at the time. But he trusted his intellect, and he trusted his education, even though he didn't have very much formal education, enough to believe he was stronger than these individuals, I think. So he wanted the strongest possible there, but he certainly wasn't intimidated by them. Um, there's the story of, of Lincoln and Springfield when he was president-elect. And I think it was Chase who was supposed to have visited him there. Uh, several people did. But the story is Chase coming out. And one of Lincoln's friends approached him and said, why is Chase here? Why would you want Chase in your cabinet? He thinks he's a bigger man than you. And Lincoln said, do you know anyone else who thinks they're a bigger man than me? I guess, well, I don't think I do. But why? Why do you ask? Well, because I want them in my cabinet, too. <laughs> and so he, he legitimately was looking for strong people in his cabinet, I think. And uh, he wasn't intimidated by them. He still felt like he would be the best. And others, you know, you, you hear from Seward in particular and others at Stanton that had a very low opinion of Abraham Lincoln um, going into the White House. And Stanton had even slighted him on several occasions. They had come across each other as lawyers. Um, but after months, after experiencing the White House, their opinions totally changed because he had this exterior that was very disarming. He was ugly. He did sometimes tell these really earthy, country bumpkin stories. But important moments, they saw his intellect, and they saw what he was capable of. So I think that's, that's my answer for your first question. The second question about the imperial presidency, um, I would point you toward David Herbert Donald, who <laughs> died just this year, uh, but was one of the great Lincoln scholars, has the, what's considered the best biography out there. But he wrote this short uh, book of essays and one of them, he actually talks about Lincoln as a Whig president. And the Whig philosophy of the presidency was actually much more centered on Congress. The presidency um, gave up powers in the Whig idea to Congress and to the cabinet. And so if anything, his background leading into the presidency would have been to leave a lot more work to the cabinet, leave a lot more work to the Congress, and only step in when necessary. Um, and I think you would argue that war changed things, the crisis changed things. You look like you wanted to have a follow-up. <laughs> oh, I, I was just going to say that the, um, the suspension of David's Corpus. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, I have, a, I have a book review up here that I wrote that you could read about Daniel Farber's book on this subject. And really what Farber argues is that Lincoln definitely went beyond presidential powers ordinary presidential powers. But then Lincoln would have argued, well, these aren't ordinary times. And in fact, he he went to Congress. He was a little, he was a little um, opportunistic and delayed the special session of Congress long enough to do certain things. But he went to Congress and said, I believe everything I did was within presidential or congressional authority. And I expect that you will likely sign off on these things that they did. Uh, and later there were Supreme Court cases or a number of things that um, that went into sort of justifying what he did. But yeah, no, there's certainly he's certainly open to an attack for being the first imperial president. I would argue in extraordinary times it was gonna happen. <laughs> yes, sir. Just to further go on further into you know, into the issue of the 
kind of can I start thinking, and it seems like in the past, the presidents did have very strong cabinets, a lot of, a lot of um, cabinet members who opposed them. How did we get from that to where we are now, where, you know, yes, there's a lot of intelligent people in the cabinets of the last couple of presidents, but generally in the last 20, 30, 40 years, the cabinet's basically been yes men and political hacks, so to speak, for the president. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would agree with that necessarily. I, I think a lot of things have changed. Um, first of all, when you look at Lincoln's day, the cabinet was his form advisors. So if there were decisions being made, a lot of times that was where the debate was. And again, Lincoln often made decisions without consulting them because he just made the decisions. But today we have this enormous White House office surrounding the president. You almost have a shadow cabinet there. And so there's debate there. It's, it's much more complex today than it was then. In fact, I'm trying to remember, I put together some figures some time ago to show how big just the White House office is, how big um, the executive office of the president is, which is a larger sphere, and how big the executive is. I think the executive is the size of, the executive department is the size of Walmart. You know, I mean, it's enormous. And uh, the White House office is something like steel case. So it's, it's a very large department. And I think um, I actually wrote a, a paper on organizational culture in the White House. And you do get reports all the time of people who walk in with all this history in the White House that um, Washington would have had to deal with. But there's all this history of great men. People walk into this office and they have a sense of awe. They're awed. And even if they vehemently disagree, with the president, they won't always tell him. And so I think the quality of the debate in the White House often has a lot more to do with the quality of the president and how that individual, um, man or woman, draws out the conversation. Um, there's an interesting case study I would direct you to actually on Kennedy, and it basically it looks at how he dealt with um, the Cuban Missile Crisis later and compares it with how he handled the Bay of Pigs. And what we see is that in the Bay of Pigs, he didn't do anything to draw, to draw up a debate. He just had a regular conversation. People told him what he wanted to hear, and they made the wrong decision. Later in the Cuban Missile Crisis, he continually had these strategies where he would take himself out of the room or group them a little differently. He had deliberate strategies to try to draw out debate, to try to draw out ideas, to try to draw out conflict. And I think in the modern White House, that's going to be a conscious effort to draw up those debates. I'll answer your question. Well, Brian, either you or uh, Mr. Hillary Snow might want to comment on our local hero, President uh, Gerald R. Ford, and his ability to assemble a very strong, powerful cabinet. Mr. Snow? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, when you, when you go over to the Ford Library next, and you're up there by the cabinet room, um, just look at that wall with all the portraits on it, because they were very strong individuals. And I think what Lewis is getting at is, is he did something similar to what Kennedy did in the case of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, where he tried to draw out this debate, 
or try to get strong people in the room and help them make better informed decisions. He do a lot on his own. He knew the budget better than any president before or since. But he was able to draw up these debates. Lucy, do you want to add anything to that? Well, Henry Kissinger made the point that Gerald R. Ford was the most secure president that he had ever worked with because Ford absolutely had no problem with all these huge egos like Kissinger. He knew whereof he spoke. And Ford had this technique. He would let each one of the cabinet members have his say, and Ford would just be puffing on his pipe just to kind of calm everything down, slow everything down. And then when everybody had finished with their, their comments, then Ford would calmly make the decision. But he, he let the egos express themselves at the table. And it was a technique that worked well. And Ford had just the personality to disarm and allow them to do it. Sounds like our office leaves with his pipe only in the back. <laughs> <laughs> they love that university, didn't you? Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.